Hello and welcome to our podcast channel, What Matters? Conversations Exploring Psychosynthesis in the World. This is Susan Jukes-Allen, founder of Synthesis Center San Francisco. Join us, along with our hosts, Craig Behenna and Christina Gustafson, in conversation with psychosynthesis practitioners in the fields of coaching, health and healing, business, spirituality, education, and the arts. Conversations to inform, inspire, and ignite your call of self. So thrilled to have Thomas Yeoman's PhD with us. We're very, very excited to be here with him and can't wait to have him share all that he has to share with us and with you. Thomas Yeoman's PhD is the founder and director of the Concord Institute and co-founder with Russian colleagues of the International School, a postgraduate training institute in St. Petersburg, Russia. His background includes education at Harvard, Oxford, and the University of California, and professional work in the fields of literature, education, and psychology. Since 1970, he's worked as a psychotherapist, teacher, and trainer of professionals in psychosynthesis and spiritual psychology throughout North America and in Europe and Russia. He's published writing on psychosynthesis and spiritual psychology, as well as three volumes of poetry and a children's book. He's also a painter and musician. Currently, he maintains a private practice in soul process guiding and mentoring and teaches occasional training seminars in soul process work. He lives with his wife, Anne, in a small farmhouse with a large garden on a hillside in Western Massachusetts. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's always strange to hear your life laid out that way. (laughs) I'm happy for the life, I'm very happy for it, but it's, uh, well, you know, there's just so many things behind those things that you read. But anyway, thank you for introducing me in that way. Absolutely, my pleasure. And of course, you know, an 80 year life in a few paragraphs. I know. There, there's so much more. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Tom, can we start, because one of the focuses of our book, our chat today is gonna to be on your new book, Holy Fire, The Process of Soul Awakening, which is recently out. And we both have very heavily annotated copies in front of us. Barely know where to start. It's ridiculous. But uh, as you said, um, there's a lot behind one paragraph that sums up 80 years. And I wonder also partly because uh, our podcast talks to people who may be discovering psychosynthesis or training in psychosynthesis or not particularly aware of the work of psychosynthesis. So I wonder if we could go back a ways mm-hmm. and if you could give us a bit of an idea of your background and how you came to discover psychosynthesis, which you talk about in the book, it's a very interesting story. And full disclosure for everyone, we've had a little bit of a pre-chat about Tom's work and also his work with Roberto Asagioli, the, the founder of psychosynthesis. And I wonder if you could give us a little information about how you came to work together because that itself is fascinating and has lots of great stuff to share. Well, I I think for those people who are just uh, becoming familiar with psychosynthesis, I could put it in uh, a more more formal context of uh, psychosynthesis being in a psychological approach to healing and human development 
Uh, it's within the context of a European depth psychology. So it's kindred to Jung, to Frankl, to uh, Freud, of course, and to other depth psychologists from the first part of the 20th century. And this school of psychology was first formulated by a psychiatrist, an Italian psychiatrist, Roberto Assagioli. And uh, he is a, was a very unusual person and he's the one that, I, that my wife and I tend to study with. But just a little bit more of the context, he was developing his thinking when Freud, when psychoanalysis was really one of the dominant schools within Europe and Freud was very excited about Assagioli and thought that he would join the Freudian circle. And Assagioli did go to Vienna to meet Freud and to be in the circle for a while. And there's letter, a letter from uh, Freud to Jung in the Freud-Jung correspondence that says, uh, Freud says, oh, there's this young Italian, and he uses the word conbrio, very lively, who is in Florence and he, I'm sure would like to join our circle. And uh, so Assagioli considered it and he wrote his thesis on psychoanalysis and he actually introduced his medical professors to psychoanalysis. So he was way ahead of his time already, but he, uh, he felt psychoanalysis was too limited for what his vision was. And so he, he, did, he said this in a very quaint way he said, Psycho uh, psychoanalysis only looks at the basement of the building. But there's the first floor, there's the second floor, and then there's the terrace at the top of the, of the house where you go up the stairs and you open the, you know, the hatchway and you step out and there are the stars. And he said, we really want to look at the whole building, not just the basement. Now it's important to say, that he said the basement was included in this building and in psychosynthesis, as opposed to some other spiritually oriented psychologies, they'll move away from the basement. But he was very respectful of psychoanalysis as covering and looking at a certain portion of our human experience, but he wanted to be included also our personal experience, our transpersonal experience, the larger reaches of spiritual life, the experience of the soul or what he called higher self. So it was a much more comprehensive and holistic vision of the human being than was current at that time. As a result, he did not have many takers. He was, he spent most of his life really quite isolated and working on his own with a small group of people, developing his thinking, writing papers, going to conferences and so forth. And it wasn't until the sixties when uh, humanistic, humanistic psychology and existential psychology came both to Europe and particularly in the United States through Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, these, these different people who wrote at that time, Gordon Alport. And Asajoli was very excited and had a correspondence with Maslow about the kindredness of their two worldviews and their psychological approaches. So, then, uh, since then, it's been studied. Many people, a group of us, and as long as he was alive, went and studied with him. And there have been institutes in Europe and in this country, and it's grown slowly. It's still, given particularly in America, which is a largely pragmatic culture, it's still not a mainstream psychological approach. But 
it's one that's attracting increasing interest. And I think the, the, the beauty of it, the draw or the beauty of it is that it has this very comprehensive view of the human being and of our experience and includes specifically the spiritual dimension, what he called the higher self, what I call the soul. So is that, is that okay as a sort of a background? That's for a fantastic people? background, yeah. Okay, Thank good. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. So then how does, how does and the, this, this building, the, the picture of the building is very quaint and it's very mm -hmm. typical of him. He, mm -hmm. uh, he had wonderful, but kind of simple, naive analogies. And yet it's perfect. It's perfect. And that he loved talking about the terrace. And when he talked about the terrace, his eyes would get very bright. And he would say, you can see the stars. <laughs> so the thing I want to do before I talk about my own experience is to read a couple of things in, from his book, which I quoted in my book, which will show you the, another dimension of the comprehensiveness of his vision. Because for most of his life and for most of psychosynthesis life, it's been seen as a depth psychology for the individual. And some talk about groups, but really not much development except at the individual level. From the very beginning, he had a vision that included all the levels of human organization right out to the planet. And that's what I want to read because what, what it means is that really the full vision of psychosynthesis is nowhere near realized yet. And that its principles bear on all levels of organizations in groups, in couples, in organizations, in nations, and the planet as a living whole too. So listen to this. He's speaking to therapists, educators. He said, let us feel and obey the urge aroused by the great need, this is very contemporary, of healing the serious ills which at present are affecting humanity. Let us realize the contribution we can make to the creation of a new civilization characterized by a harmonious integration and cooperation pervaded by the spirit of synthesis. And that, that breadth and depth of vision is one of the things that it drew me to. I, I think that I was trying to find as a young man, some way to contribute to the world, to make things better. I, Grew up in a family that had that orientation. Uh, I tried a number of different things. Uh, that you'll, whoever reads the book will see all the things that didn't work. My father despaired of me and so forth. <laughs> but I was, so serious, I was seriously looking for something that I could, through which I could make a contribution. And at, at that level, now the interesting thing is that I didn't read that quote and then come to psychosynthesis. I read it afterwards and it resonated to me. Um, and as I've been thinking about that, I was saying, well, you know, I really was trying to understand the soul long before I knew I was. Mm. That there was a seed there in my life that I, as a young, insecure, struggling teenager, whatever it was trying to, and, and 20 year old was trying to find. And so what actually happened for me is that I was in graduate school, I was 30. Uh, by that time I was married and had two children. 
And uh, someone, and I was interested in guided imagery because that was one of the things we did. I told you about those uh, long guided imagery. And uh, I, so someone said, hey, you should read this book by Psychosynthesis. There's lots of iastrogility. There's lots of guided imagery. So I was reading it and I came to the egg diagram, which for you people who don't know much about psychosynthesis, that's one. It's like a picture of the house with all the different levels, the constitution of the human being. I came to the egg diagram and I, I can remember the moment. It was, it was a hardbound blue book. Uh, and I remember I saw that diagram and a voice in my head said, this is what I've been looking for. And I had what I would call now a soul moment. I had a recognition of my path. And I was thinking today of preparing for this, man, that happened to me. And I stayed with it for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, I knew about it before I knew about it. I knew about that seed, but I didn't know. I was looking for it. And finally, and I, it, it, it reminds me of what Astro Jolie said to me, and I'll talk about it again later, but where he says, your soul knows all about it, is only waiting for you to find out. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, at age 30, I found out. I said, that's it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, uh, I then, in many different ways, pursued psychosynthesis for, for the last 50 years, and teaching and training and all the things in my bio there. <laughs> Christina read but uh, I want to say a little bit about what it was like to be with him. Yes, please. We would yes, love to hear love about to hear that. that. And, uh, now that you have this sort of, I think the reason I want to include that quote is because his work is nowhere near done. It's, I would say at most it's a quarter to a third done. Mm-hmm. And or I used to say psychosynthesis has a very long half-life. So <laughs> for people like yourselves who are just setting up, this is a new field. There's work that's been done and some has been very good and some has not been so good. But the point is, there's tremendous potential still. So we went, uh, we were in a a group in California that was working on training psychosynthesis people and so forth. For a while, the psychosynthesis was the rage of the human potential movement in the early 70s. Michael Murphy, who started Esalen Institute, went to see Asajoli, came back and said, Psychosynthesis will integrate the human potential movement, but it didn't, it it didn't work that way. So we were in California and uh, part of what people were doing at that time was going to Florence. And so we were encouraged to go visit him. And at that time he he was 82. Uh, And so we and we took our children with us and we had a nine month old baby who was still nursing and a four year old little boy. Because I had the feeling I did not want to leave my family behind to go to this, on this pilgrimage. They were part of it. So we took the flu, we took the train, and we got to Florence overnight, early morning with a baby. And we got in somehow in a taxi and we went to, uh, to his house, which is in the outskirts of Florence. And we were exhausted. And we had both children with us. And he, uh, we were sitting there just... We got inside the institute, we were sitting there, and this tall, dignified man in a black suit showed up and said, oh, you're here to see Dr. Asajoli, like we had come around the corner, right? 
<laughs> we said yes, just with the last breath. He said, come this way. He ushered us upstairs into Roberto, to call him by his first name's office. And there is this little bird of a man in a velveteen smoke, smoking jacket and a cravat and a little goatee sitting behind his desk. And he stands up and he greets us. And he's really intrigued with the children. He talks to them. He looks at the baby and admires the baby and so forth. And uh, that was our first meeting with him. And he very graciously called up a, a, a pensione nearby and made an arrangement for us. And he was just the most personable and humble person. There was no airs, you know, no arrogance of the teacher. So we, we got settled in this pension and we came back the next day for our first session. And he, he greeted us, we came in and he said, where are the children? <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I'm telling that story because he had a childlike quality to him. Mm -hmm. He was very open and, and uh, innocent in that way. He also was extraordinarily intelligent as you know, well-read in many different traditions, so forth and so on. And he also was really intuitive. He had a deep intuition that learned a lot, and I'll say a little bit about that in a minute. So then we, uh, we had our first session with him, and I won't tell you about all the sessions. We had him over a month or so, but the first session, we sat with him for an hour. We each had a half hour, and he was deaf. So what you did was you took a microphone and you held it up to him, while he talked. And if you wanted to, you handed him a scrap of paper with a question, but mostly you listened to him. And we had written autobiographies before about our lives, our struggle, our journeys. And he spoke to us, each of us for half an hour. And when we finished, we walked out of the, of the Institute there and we said, we could go home now. Yeah. We've gotten what we came for. And the reason we could say that, and this is what's so important, is that he had the capacity to see very, very deeply into a person as to who they really were, spiritually, as a soul. And he also, because of his own maturity, spiritual maturity, was able to affirm that. So Anne and I both had, you know, this is a common parlance now of being seen but we, were, we came into the presence of someone who could see us, not judge us, not misunderstand us, but see us at a very deep level. That was such a healing moment for us. And uh, so he was funny, he was joyful. The last session we spent with him, it was mostly laughter. Uh, he would approach things that seemed catastrophic with a perspective and a sense of humor, not, not a laughing at, but a larger, a larger perspective. So we had the experience of being in the field, and that's a word I can use later too, in the field, the energy field, the spiritual energy field of a very, very mature man, soul, however you would say it. And you can imagine that that, uh, you know, confirmed our desire to keep to keep, to keep working in psychosynthesis. So we, we did. And, you know, we worked, uh, we worked together a little bit. We worked in this institute in San Francisco, but we also, Ann and I uh, took our own paths in terms of how we applied the principles 
And I think that's another thing about psychosynthesis is that it's such an open and comprehensive system that many different kinds of people and disciplines can find their place in it. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I'm gonna stop in a minute. I know I'm talking too much, but uh, uh, in my teaching of psychosynthesis, I would, I would say that I could count on one hand the numbers of students who call their work psychosynthesis. And I taught probably thousands of students, mm-hmm. but they would, what they did was they took, the, they would take the principles of psychosynthesis back into whatever their particular profession was, a psychiatrist, social worker, teacher, whatever, whatever. And that's interesting because I think Roberto, that's fine with him. He did not want to build a movement. He did not want to build a psychosynthesis edifice, sort of the way uh, Freud has with psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, again, this humility, this, he, he wanted people to find out who they were and to live their authentic life embracing all the differences that that would, would entail. Mm. So, and worked with women, I did training, I went to Russia, many different things that, uh, but it was all within the frame of psychosynthesis. And interestingly, just, this is the last thing I'll say. Interestingly, I just actually did another interview with someone who was trained in the seventies in psychosynthesis and then went on to do all sorts of things, different things. And in a sense, put it behind him, but he said, Tom, after reading your book, I realized that I never left psychosynthesis, that I have continued to work in this frame, even though the details of my work are different. And I've had many students who said that too. You know, we studied with you in the eighties and we went on and had other careers, but this is, this was our ground. This was the place. So all this is to say, it's an unfinished uh, system. It's very humanistic. And it affirms deeply the, the spiritual nature of human life, uh, but in a grounded way that includes personal life and daily life. And our two children coming to visit Roberto. So glad we took those children. So oh, that was probably much too long an answer for your question, Greg. Not at <laughs> all. Okay. I, have, I have like a page and a half of follow-ups, but I'm only going to ask one. Okay. Um, well, uh, no, I'm going to start with one. Uh, <laughs> the, the, I mean, the, there's, there's a lot in what you've said, but I'm, I'm very interested in those, those moments when you meet someone, like you said, and you came out and you right. go, oh, I can go home now. We, we're done. I'm good. Yeah. And my, the question then is just before we, we kind of hit the record button, we were talking about it, it, it being about being in someone's presence and it's like a transmission or something like that. It yeah. feels like you had that kind of experience. Yeah. And I wonder if you can say, if you can, I don't know if you can, how he conveyed that, how you, how you got that, what his presence was, what his practice was that made you feel so seen. How he conveyed it. Yeah. How did yeah, you, that's you a great question. experience in that from him? Because it obviously was very yeah. clear to you. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a great question. And it ties into also something we may talk about later, but I could say it now. Mm. This has more to do with my work and the things I've emphasized within psychosynthesis, but it's still very there. The practice of what I call existential presence is what I would say, that's what Roberta was doing for us. In other words, he was able to so fully 
uh, incarnate, I guess that's the word for it, or embody his, the spiritual force of his soul, that he, that he generated a radiant force field, what I call the soul force field, which had no words to it. It wasn't anything that he said to us, nothing he said to us. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I mean, he said some crazy things to us, in fact. But uh, it was this, uh, best I can say is, it, it, and this goes back to how I think about the soul, is that soul is basically soul force or vitality. It's aliveness. And that is stepped down into presence and radiance. Mm -hmm. So you could say that uh, Asajoli had a very powerful uh, spiritual force field or radiance. And when we came into his presence, uh, things started opening up and moving. And uh, we became more available to what he had to say. I and mean, it wasn't just him giving us something. And actually during the time we spent with him, huge things happened to us. And yet at the end, you know, I, I said to him at the end, I said, oh, I'm so sad to go back. And will I be able to keep this in the, uh, you know, will I keep this alive when I get back to the States? And he said, my dear, all that you have experienced is in you. So you can't lose it. Right. It was so beautiful. And there's again, affirming all that you've experienced is in you. What's happened in you is that your force field, your soul has become more embodied as a result of this work. And that's why you're so happy, so joyful. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that speaks to your question, but he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything specific. I mean, he spoke to, he had read the papers and he spoke to us and stuff, but it has nothing to do with that. And so when you're teaching therapists, that's what you're trying to teach them, not technique or technique imbued with soul force because it's the field that they generate in their presence that will, that will open up the process and allow things to happen. And I tell you what, if the therapist is in his or her head and trying to figure out what to do, no field will develop and nothing will happen. Or the poor patient client will begin to think they have to take care of the, uh, the therapist who's nervous, you know, yeah. and yeah. become compliant or, or whatever. So to me, it's absolutely central to train and support, and everyone can do this, uh, to deepen and strengthen that field. And Roberto, he had a very strong field. And I would say the other thing, which comes with that field, is his, as I said this before, but his intuition was incredible. So he could intuit Intuition means to see deeply within. He could see very deeply within both of us and, and affirm, you know, what was there. Yeah, it sounds as though what he was doing is he was reflecting to you what was already in you. That's kind of yeah. what you've already said. But it's, it's that, that capacity of people who have that deep development and that intuition yeah. to know that that's actually the, the prime thing that they need to to do is, is have that presence and reflect it to the people that they're with. Right. That's right. a prime source of their inner growing. Right. Is that a good way of summarizing it in very short form? Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, and mm. you know, that moment when I looked at the egg diagram, that was somehow related. And there have been other moments in my life where I have recognized through my own intuition 
you know, what was right for me, what to do or what not to do. And, you know, it's a mysterious process, but I, I think in terms of working with people, one of the beauties of it is we saying, you know what's right for you. I'm talking to a client or a child. You know what's right for you. You may not be in touch with that. I'll help you undo the blocks and look at the things that get in the way. But I have complete confidence in you that you know what's best for you and you know what your path is. And that's not the attitude of all therapists. No, that's true. You get, that's true. Yeah, as soon as you get, someone has to be an authority, someone knows better, whatever, it blocks that process. Mm. So I think one of the real powers of psychosynthesis is the affirmation of the potential for that deep knowing and being able to live the life that you most want to live. Right. Yeah. And absolutely being able to kind of maintain that, that clear field or mm. get to that clear field. Yeah. Well, what, I, what actually happens is the clear field is really important mm -hmm. to, to have the experience of. Then what happens is that that clear field then allows, and this is true of a client or yourself, mm -hmm. it allows the next block to come up. Yeah. So. That explains a lot. <laughs> Isn't that a whole bag no, of fun? You know, in, in the old days when people had these blockbuster sessions and then they come back the next time they were a wreck. Yeah. They'd say, what happened? <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I was in. So that's the beauty of soul and personality and soul and psyche and the complexity is the process proceeds by from opening to block, opening to block, opening to block, opening to block. Mm. And once people accept that, it makes it a lot easier. I, I think people are much more aware of that now than they used to. But in the 60s and 70s, yeah. everyone had wanted to get there and stay there. And that got, oh, in, the way. That got in the way. Yeah, because yeah, it's a, it forms an attachment, doesn't it? In that sense, if you're so mm -hmm. so gripping and attaching to it, there's no way right. you're actually going to be able to stay there. Yeah. Um, right. Which actually brings me to one more question. Then I, I want to maybe we can we can move on. But there's, it's just a great little coincidence. The um, the quote you mentioned, Tom, just before about the uh, the true self has already chosen is literally the quote that I've I've held the held the book open onto because I wanted to ask you a question about it. So and, just, and read, uh, read the quote to me. Have you read? Read. Yeah, I'll read it out to you. Um, the self will choose and has already chosen. It's just waiting for your personality to become aware of it. This is okay. something that you quoted in the book as uh, something that Roberto Asagioli said to you. Just a, another line or so down, uh, it says, if you let go, you will receive everything needed, as you've kind of just said, actually. Right. If you refuse to choose at a personal level, the self will be obliged to choose for you, and it's already done it, and it waits for you to be aware. Yeah. That's, just, that's the back end of that first part of that quote that you mentioned and that's a fascinating thing to me because I just wrote I'm no stranger to this kind of work but that's a particularly fascinating point for me because I wanted to hear from you how you experience how you see that happening. tell me what's fascinating about it for you specifically oh I I like the the idea that um if you by which I'm thinking is the, the you of the personality level mm -hmm this mm -hmm. kind of level, refuse to choose. The self, me, the higher self, the superconscious, however we right. want to talk right. about it, 
will be obliged to choose for you. I love that choice of words. Like, I know. Look. <laughs> oh, gee. It's I not up to, to me, <laughs> but I mean, it's kind of up to me now. So yeah, really. <laughs> off you go. Yeah. And then it waits for you to be aware. So you're, in a sense, it's waiting for you to play catch up. Right. And I, I love that as a, an idea. And I wonder how you see that working in practice, both for yourself and sure. for some of the people that you work with. Well, that's a great question. Specific, but, you know, it's a really interesting process. For yeah. Me. And see, I think, uh, well, what this touches in is to the process of awakening and the stages of awakening. Okay. So just briefly there, I don't know if we plan to talk about that, but certainly the first awakening is simply to consciousness. And as a Jolie story is I was asleep and then I woke up. So it woke up into personality consciousness. Okay. Or levels of the psyche or whatever, you know, so forth. Then the second more deliberate awakening, which he talked about is sitting up in bed, you know, very quaint again and meditating would be to shift identification from personality to soul. And that's a huge, huge thing. Most people are working on that, okay? And, you know, Piero and, uh, and Diana in London just did a workshop on what they called the decisive shift. But this is the first time, they read this book and I think they got inspired to be much more explicit about that shift of identification from personality to soul, that we really are souls who have personalities, okay? So then the third awakening is knowing that the call becomes to descend or to incarnate or to express yourself. It isn't to know the higher self better. You know who you are. So the actual direction of the path tends toward the world. And then the fourth awakening puts it all together. So he said that to me in a sense from the perspective of the fourth awakening. Of once you know all those things. So in religious terms, you know, they talk about surrender. You need to surrender everything in order to know God and so forth and so on. That was where he was talking. You can't say that to someone who's just setting out. Sure. Because yeah. the first things they have to do is learn how to disidentify. They have to learn how to identify with the I. They need to learn how to make choices from the I that work with the different blocks and identifications, so forth, so that their personality coheres, so it can hold the soul force without it being distorted when it comes in. So I think he was talking to me from the far end when he said that. But it is interesting that you do all this work and then you ultimately you do let go of it all. And when I went into that dark night, you remember that the monk said to me, Tom, it all has to go. And that was totally terrifying to my personality. And I knew intuitively I was in exactly the right place to go through that process of letting go of everything. Now, I promise you, if you're willing to let go, it all comes back. But the relationship to it is completely different because you're not bound by it. You're not identified with it. Then as a soul, you can, and he said this to me too, you can use all the permutations and combinations of who you are to express who you are in the world. I was obsessing about, should I be a poet 
or a painter? Should I be a teacher or this? And I quote him too. He says, everything can be used in parallel or alternatively. That's not the issue. The issue is who you are. So once you get a person to the maturity, whether they get to it or you're working with some, where they have that sense, then they can be very creative with who they are. And interesting thing there is often people will want to leave their lives in order to get somewhere else where it's going to be spiritually better. As you do this process, they begin to realize that they're right where they belong and that all the experience they've had is useful. So they stay married. They stay as a priest. They stay as whatever. And, and that's, what, that's what's happening there. It's really that, a perspective shift, isn't it? Yeah. It's all perspective. Right. And then the beauty of it is that everything can be used. So if you want to say there's also an economy in it, people don't have to rush off and, join, and be in a monastery or go to another country or whatever. They just need to realize who they are and what they've been given to express. You know, there's a Hasidic story about the little man who goes to Krakow and tries to get across a bridge and the guard stops him and says, oh, you can't do that. And the little man has had a dream that under his stove, uh, under, you know, near this bridge is buried treasure. And the guard laughs at him and says, no, I had a dream like that once. I dreamt that there was a buried treasure under a stove in, in uh, Warsaw. And the little man came from Warsaw. He went back <laughs> to his home, <laughs> dug up the treasure. It was right there all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which is or, similar to the Buddha that was covered in clay. Yeah. That same story, right? Yeah. yeah. It was or, there yeah, all the time. All there all the time. Or what Martin Buber used to uh, say, uh, tell the story of... Um, when you go to heaven, uh, God will not ask you why you weren't Moses. He'll ask you why you weren't you. Same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, anyway, in does that help with your question, Craig? Oh, enormously. Okay. Yeah, very much so. And and so, Tom, in in your book, yeah. Soul Fire, you've provided us a real outline of the process of the soul and also many tools to really help i think go within and get closer to higher self get closer to soul in, in the terminology that you use mm -hmm. um can how effective can one be on their own in, in using these practices, using these tools that you've provided us? And at what point does somebody need to see a practitioner and, and get guidance right. and assistance? Yeah. How, how does that work? Well, you know, it's, it's, and you're, you're putting it that way. It's not an either or question. Mm -hmm. It's a both and question. Right. I think that the power of psychosynthesis and the psychosynthesis techniques is that it, in a sense, it is a self-help orientation in the sense that it's simple, simple enough for people to understand. Uh, as Laura Huxley once said, oh, psychosynthesis, it's just common sense. There's a kind of common senseness about it. It's not elaborate, it's not integrated, it's not, you know, the id, the ego, and it's not intellectual. Mm -hmm. So 
I think, and I've seen this happen, that people have uh, used the tools of psychosynthesis on their own and, and you know, and, and been very effective. Mm-hmm. And there, there are people reading this book who are, and there is amazing response from different countries and different kinds of people that they're able to read the book and it resonates something in them that helps them understand better where they are and what they need to do. As one of my colleagues says, the book is psychoactive. In other words, it works people. If they read it slowly and enter into it, it works them. And that's the same principle that they know at some level how to do it and what to do. At the same time, the major problem with all of us is that we don't know how to disidentify and that we're attached to different things that we think we are whether it's our suffering or our, our culture or whatever. So those stumbling blocks or those blocks, may not, we may not see them or be able to see them. So certainly finding someone who embodies a more dispassionate observer place and knows how to work with the process is tremendously helpful. And at the same time, again to say, once a person has worked with a therapist, when the therapy's over, the process isn't over. Right. Yeah. Hopefully they've been empowered and have the tools to become increasingly self-guided. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, so it's, the both things are there. Sure. Yeah. And also that capacity for awareness that, you know, you see the light and then comes something else, right? right. Another, yeah. another, um, block to be examined exactly and right. you know what and you and if you one of the things you've learned in psychotherapy or counseling or whatever is that's the way the process works so that you're not upset when something comes up that you don't understand you you're curious about it right. and you realize that it's it's the next step and i can promise you it's still happening to me it's not like sure. i got to a certain point where i was so realized and that's it no i have a deep connection to who i am and there, there are things coming up still that I need to be interested and look, in, look at that are limiting me in some way and that I need to understand. So I think it's both, Christina. Yeah. I, I think a, a therapist who knows how to do this can be a tremendous help. And the other thing, going back to what we said before, mm-hmm. the therapist who has that deep connection, what we were talking about, Craig, so he or she radiates the a force field, intuitive force field within which the person can work and their own soul force field can be stimulated. That's a tremendous gift. That's way beyond any technique, any knowledge, anything. It's it, because again, the basic experience is one. Here's someone who sees me, who affirms who I am, uh, who loves me, if you want to put it that way, but it's not, it's not particularly demonstrative love. It's more, uh, acceptance and uh, that's invaluable for a person. So that's another part of going to see another person as well as techniques as has to do with a companion. And a guide. And when I went to, to this monk uh, who was Jungian, Jungian uh, he, he worked with dreams. You know, that's all we did was dream interpretation. No experiential work, no techniques, no nothing. But his intuition about the dreams was so deep 
that it, it helped me tremendously. And he was, he received me and took this process that was agonizing for me uh, seriously and stood with me the whole time. That gift was really the major gift that he gave me. And the dream interpretation was fine. And when, we had, when I had to do process, I just do it myself. <laughs> and he would sit there and watch me. He didn't, he didn't want to be anywhere near it. He didn't know. It was not his bailiwick. So I would cry or I would do something and he would smile. <laughs> could you just tell us, could you just recap that story about the monk for those of us? Because we, we talked about this actually just before we, before, before we recorded. Could you just do a, give us a quick uh, catch up on that story for people who are watching? The story, the which story? Um, about you um, visiting the monk. Oh, me? Uh, and the co yeah, the context in which you came to visit. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, I was, I talk about it in the book. I think I was around 60 years old. I had, everything was booming. And uh, in terms of training and so forth and so on, and tra traveling to Europe, started the school in Russia, all, all these things, and it began to dry up. I just couldn't. I couldn't feel the energy of it anymore, even though it, it was certainly successful and needed and so forth and so on. And that began a process of where those forms that we were talking about before, I had to let go of. And in the first meeting with this Jungian, who had also been a Carmelite monk for 30 years before he became a Jungian, that's why he, he understood. And the Carmelite tradition is uh, St. John of the Cross. So it's the dark night of the soul. And, uh, He's the one who said to me that I talked for about a half an hour saying some of these dreams and so forth. And he looked at me and said, Tom, it all has to go. Mm -hmm. And that's speaking to what you asked before. He was previewing coming attractions for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a feeling of holy, I won't say the word. What, what am I doing? And the other was... I'm in exactly the right place for what I need now. And he saw me through and we're good friends. He's, a, you know, we're about the same age. And he's retired now and lives in New Hampshire, but we, we're very, very close. I wouldn't call it friends, but spiritual companions. Because as you know, in working with people, your clients are giving you things all the time. Yeah. You know, it's the most rewarding work. Mm. And so I'm sure that I gave him a lot and he gave me, of course, a lot too. So. Sure. That exchange and that recognition and that presence and that, that awareness. Yeah. Together. Yeah. The mirrors we are for each other. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I called a Jungian friend in Cambridge and said, I need help. He gave me three names. He described each person. I knew immediately who the person was. Mm. Another one of those moments. I never even considered the other two people. I said, that's it. That's what I need. So, you know, the soul knows all about it. It's only waiting for you to find out. <laughs> the, ra the radical thing about this work, and it's still to come, I think, because people, it, it's, it's radical, is to say, we are souls who have personalities. That we organize and heal, care for and develop so that we as souls, which I mean us at our best, us at our most mature, us as most deeply connected, it's no big deal. 
can express fully who we are in the world. And we need the instrument of the personality, but we are not that. And Asajoli said that to me right at the beginning. He said, Tom, the mistake you're making, which everybody does, is you think that's who you are, but you're not. And if there's a future for psychosynthesis, I think it would be to really help people come to that deeper experience of who they are. I think it would make a huge, huge difference. Mm. So, and I, I, you know, my book is really rooted in that understanding. Absolutely, because your book really is calling us to soul. Right. Yeah, and, and really. And as, as, as not even soul is important as something that's out there, but something that, that this is who we are mm-hmm. here now. And the whole, the whole thing about soul process, which is in its own way radical, is that it says soul is in the present moment in the experience you're having now. It's not out somewhere else that you have to get to. It's here. And can we learn, can we learn that? It's non-dual. I mean, that's the word now in, you know, it's non-dual. Absolutely. But it's powerful. It would, it would, anyway. That's it. You know, it makes me, um, we talked about this before we hit record and maybe even our last conversation together. Um, Barbara Marks Hubbard and Conscious Evolution. Yeah. And what conscious evolution really hinges on is each of us connecting back within and connecting to soul. Right. Right. Kind of that, uh, that unfettered or un, um, b- beyond or beneath all the layers that have been put on us right. through the conditioning that we experience in life. And, and I'm curious, it, it is so easy. And I think especially in, in the United States and probably Western culture in general, but the United States more, I know this culture um, and have been a part of it for a long time, but it is very easy to stay under all of the layers of our personality and all of our conditioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it asks a lot more of, uh, it's a lot more challenging, I think, to go within right. and to start peeling those layers away. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we live in a largely materialistic and pragmatic culture. That's what Amer- one of America's gifts is pragmatism and the right use of matter. But there's so many problems with that now in terms of what you're talking about. Right. And that's changing. And even the pandemic, I think, is contributing to an awakening. It's so strange where there's been so much suffering and so much difficulty. And at the same time, uh, I was talking to someone the other day, uh, a client actually in Europe, but he was saying, there's so much energy. It was in Sweden. He said, there's so much going on. There's so many new ideas happening. So, you know, the other thing, uh, Christina, just to say is, it's anticipating your question later on, but just to say, if you think about what you said, that people could really make that shift, or I would say a critical mass of humanity, probably not all of humanity, but a critical mass, mm-hmm. you would get what I call species maturity, which would be that a sufficient number of people were making choices that would deal with climate change, that would create economic equity, that would in a sense, solve the problems. And that's what Astrid Jolie is talking about in that quote. Mm-hmm. 
right? The supreme. A synthesis. new civilization characterized mm -hmm. so and so on, and in the spirit of synthesis, and the painting on the cover is about that possibility. That's the Earth as as a source of light, its own light. So that instead of projecting the light out, there would be enough uh, maturity as the earth is a system that it would become radiant. And that painting is to try to portray that. The, the, the holy fire is the fire coming off the earth. Mm -hmm. And of course it's apocalyptic too, because you, you, we're getting hotter and hotter by the year. So the painting holds both those things the apocalypse and also the possibility of uh, species maturity. And uh, imagine what it'd be like if a, crit a large critical mass of the, of the human population had learned to live at peace and with other species and in economically sustainable ways and, and racially just ways, so forth and so on. It would be unbelievable. And it's possible. It's possible. miraculous. It is. We can do it. We're a long way from it. Sure. It's, it's within the realm of possibility. It is. So it makes it very interesting to be alive right now. Absolutely. And depending on what you believe in terms of reincarnation and soul choice yep. and things of that nature, kind of yep. the longer view beyond yep. just yep. this lifetime right. that all of us did, it could have very well made this choice to be here right now. <laughs> and to be contributors to this. Absolutely. Well, there's some people say that that's why the earth is so crowded. Because Gosh. there's so many souls that wanted to incarnate. wanted to check this time out. <laughs> <laughs> this might be too personal, but I did have an experience a few weeks ago when I took a journey, a guided visualization journey for a life between lives session. And I was surrounded by soul beings, my soul family. And I asked them about this time, yeah. this, this great awakening, how can I be of greatest service? And they, they said, you know, like, like it doesn't matter as long as you're wanting to be of service and doing your work to show be of service. That's what matters. Yeah. And the most important thing that I thought that I caught from that experience was, um, wouldn't it be amazing if humanity could, could do this, right. you know, and if they don't, you know, exactly. yeah, you said it's that. all right. <laughs> exactly. There'll be other opportunities. Exactly. There's a real, real opportunity now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going back to psychosynthesis. Yes, please. Psychosynthesis is a tool. It, it's, it's a vision. It embraces a process and it has the tools to really support that species maturation. Right. It has nowhere near realized its potential for that. And I'm not sure it will. Again, it's up in the air. But in terms of what's offered by Asajoli and his vision mm -hmm. and what's in place, uh, there's a real possibility that it could be a major contributor. It might even not even be called psychosynthesis. You know, and I told you the story about Frank Heronian before. But, uh, but yeah, so we're in the right place. What would you like to see? Like, what are oh, your that, wishes in terms of psychosynthesis as a contributing um, gift to this unfolding? And your hopes for psychosynthesis moving forward? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I expressed this to you before. Mm -hmm. uh, I th one, I feel there's a new generation who has psychosynthesis in their hands now. You 
and people your age. And it's not just an age thing. It has to do with, you know, the waves. Those of us who studied with Astrojoli and brought it to this country for the first time and so forth and so on. And there have been other generations, but I think there's a new generation because it, it sort of waned for a while. And it seems to be now that there's new energy and there are new people. And so that's one thing to really, I would like to, and I would like, see, I would like to, and I would like to see happening that you get supported, that you get supported and get the support you need. And I'm talking to two of you, but I'm also talking to you of that generation in Europe and in this country and so forth and so on. I also think that, I, I mentioned this before, but when we studied psychosynthesis, the means through which we understood the process was therapeutic. Okay. And it, it entailed very different forms. I told you about these long daydreams and so forth. Right. And that was because in the culture at that time, there was a tremendous emphasis on consciousness and exploring consciousness and came out of, of the drug movement too. And, but also Stan Groff's work, it was in the air, consciousness, transforming consciousness. That's not here now. It's different. Maybe it's more pragmatic. Maybe that exploration is done. So, you know, the shift from being psychotherapists to coaches, that is a shift. So coaching is perhaps the form, and maybe it's not either or, that will next uh, embody the principles of psychosynthesis. And it's also true that it may be that what I said before is that people could be trained in psychosynthesis and not do it. In other words, there could be psychosynthesis principles for office managers, psychosynthesis principles for whatever, and they would go back into their offices and they would not agree the word about it, but they would work differently. So I, I think it's limited to think of psychosynthesis as a thing that's gonna get bigger. I think it's more if it can become generative. Absolutely. Generative of activity that doesn't depend on the name. Mm -hmm. but is rooted in the principles. So what would I like to see? I'd love, I'd love to see that because I think this, going back to Roberto's quote, that this vision, orientation, sets of skills, so forth, is, uh, can be very effective in, in helping the, the species mature. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I've spoken and it's come across my, my field of awareness quite several times in the last few months of um, teachers who mm -hmm. are wanting to bring this work to children and to teenagers. Great. And how beautiful to get, you know, to be able to work with, with youth and these types of principles, these psychosynthetic principles early before all that, <laughs> maybe not before all of it has been yeah. put on the human, but maybe a little bit less. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Where the soul's closer, you know, right. not as many layers to dig through. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned this because there's a woman here in Brattleboro uh, who wants to start a three week training retreat for adolescents from, uh, I think, it's 16 to 24. Oh, and, and she's using all she works with Joanna Macy. She's mm -hmm. she studied psychosynthesis. She and she wants to create a residential retreat for children that age to do just what you're talking about. I love that. And what's interesting further, because Roberto 
was very interested in that. And he wrote a pamphlet called The Education of Gifted Adolescents. And I just today wrote her about that and said, find this pamphlet. He was very, very interested in this. And you're saying it, but I'll just, I'll double it back. It's not so much that all the things haven't piled up. It's that for sure, mm-hmm. rather than someone who's middle-aged and divorced and struggled in the middle of the It's that their soul is closer to the surface. And going back to the idea of soul moments, that if you work with someone, you can have them go back into their childhood. They will find moments when they knew who they were. And there's just less, there's just, it's more presence. There's more presence. And, you know, I say in the book, at childbirth, that's a spiritual event because there's not much of a personality there. But the baby is radiant. And you, and you see people around the baby, you know, everyone is glowing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> because they're in the presence of spiritual energy. Absolutely. So another reason for working with young people is both those things. is to affirm that's who they are. They're unique. They're not somebody's son or daughter who has to do something or look a certain way. They're a unique person. And they also don't have to pile up all the baggage. Yeah. yeah. And, and really... That- having that awareness at an earlier age then makes choice points much more easy. I would imagine has the potential to make the choice point much easier to navigate. Absolutely. Well, you know, after Joey's the case in point, he was in a, in a at age 14 he tells the story. He was rowing on Lake Lausanne or somewhere like that as a young teenager. And he laid back in the boat and put the oars up and was just daydreaming. And something happened where he said, I know who I am. And from that moment on, he was, he was connected and he made choices, just what you're saying from that place. Right. And he survived, you know, the, the war and uh, Mussolini's Italy and all sorts of things, but he just stayed steady, you know, steady on his course. So it doesn't often happen, but it's certainly possible. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Wow. Okay. How are we doing on time? I'm not looking at clocks. Oh, um, where are we, Craig? Yeah, I think we're ish of an hour. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> what do you want to do? What do we want to do? I've got a couple Talk of Talk to you for the rest of the day. This is too I know, much fun. <laughs> I've got like a... a well, listen, you could, I, this is probably not fair, but I'd like to know a little bit about what this touches in you to talk this way. Could you should both just say briefly, because I think that's important for people to know too. Sure. Like we've been having this wonderful conversation about things that are really important. How, how does that stir you? Not a long thing, but just what, what happens in you? Uh, for me, uh, this conversation and, and talking with you had not just this time, but the last time we talked, mm-hmm. uh, you also have a capacity, like you said uh, about Roberto to, um, at least for me, I feel seen. Mm-hmm. I feel seen in this conversation and I'm having a lot of um, pieces, experiences mm-hmm. that are sort of coming, coming together. Great. Pieces of uh, of wisdom, aha moments, light light moments that have happened in my life, mm-hmm. and that's kind of cycling in the background as we're having this conversation. That's great. And then I keep reminding myself to come back to be fully present in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. 
That's wonderful. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. How about you, Craig? Oh, there are a number of things for me. I'm very interested in uh, presence and the, the power of presence, as you discussed before. I've, I've been lucky. I've, I kind of recognize that I've been in the presence of a couple of teachers who had that as mm -hmm. well. And I've been very aware of the impact that that had on me and the importance of that also just to, and the, the, the gift that you give when you're able to be very present with somebody because that presence itself is actually the thing that makes them feel seen. Right. I find that to be very important in all the different forms of teaching that I've done. Yeah. So not just in this field, but in, right. in film and in acting and places like that. And people just blossom. They really do. Right. When you can, when you, when you can take away the agenda yeah. and just simply be with them in a state of whatever it is that I can be with you right now, mm -hmm. there's a very different, there's a very different relationship that, that develops. And even if it's not a long-standing relationship in that moment, that, that mm -hmm. flowering just really does happen. So I'm very interested in that. Uh, it also, I got a lot of resonance from what you were saying about your experience that life point in your experience where you started talking to the, um, the Jungian therapist who had previously been a monk where you were seeing a lot of the things that had been a part of your life as the, what had kind of become the attached, the things that attached together to form a personality in a life that were mm -hmm. now needing to be let go of and falling away. Totally selfish. Cause I'm sitting there going, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I'm <laughs> sitting yeah, with too. right now going, it's all this stuff what yeah. is happening so uh, that that it's very strongly for me at the moment going what is what is all of this because what you're talking about with all of that stuff in those that conversation was firstly it felt like a disintegration in a way to me what yeah. you're talking about oh, yeah and then at the same time the feedback that you were getting from that therapist was that it's all got to go but that's also the place where you start to reveal yourself. So it's actually kind of an integration, right. it feels like to me. Yeah. Uh, like I, I feel like that's, that's a, a good interpretation of it. And I, I think that's very real for, certainly very real for me. I was gonna say it's very real for a lot of us, which is me just projecting away from the fact that it's very real for me at the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a lot, and I've, I've just been coming back, sitting, just flicking through your book just for a minute. This is a very long answer to the question, but flicking through some of these exercises and talking, thinking about what I've seen you talk about previously in interviews about the soul yearning and signs of the soul. Mm -hmm. Good. Like, uh, there's, there's, something, there's something very much alive in that area for me at the moment. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. And you know, I said this before, but just say it again. <clears throat> it, it's true that at different points, we have to let go of things. And at some point, although we don't have to do it right away, you, you have this experience of letting go of, quote, everything. But the paradox or the consolation or whatever it is, is that you, nothing disappears, but your relationship changes radically to everything. So... <clears throat> And, and, and Asajoli says that to me. He says, you have many talents. You can use them all. So, so it's the same thing. There, there's this dark night of the soul. It's excruciating from the point of view of the attachments. And you have to live that. There's no short circuit. 
But at the same time, something else is filling in. Something else is coming to you more strongly, which is who you are, in other words. So, and then finally, those things get to be used. Now, if you say that you can't promise that and you can't say, you know, well, don't worry, you'll get there and so forth and so on, because whatever the step is, it has to be mourned. That's the key. And that's where the presence comes in too, because the person needs to, to themselves, and also if you're a therapist, you need to be present to the person unequivocally without any pressure to go anywhere or to change the experience. Because as I say, when I talk about soul process, that's a seed of the soul is buried in that experience of excruciation or of uh, joy or of whatever. So the beauty of it is that you don't leave anything behind and you don't leave anything out, but you change your relationship to everything. That's, the, that's, what I, that's, the, that's what Roberto was talking about when he talked about the process of psychosynthesis with a small p. Yeah, and it reminds me of what you said. I actually wrote down that quote that you, you mentioned just before. You have all of these talents. And the, the rest of the quote that I wrote down is you have all these talents and none of them are you. Yeah. And I, I think it's really interesting, um, speaking for myself, having spent a lot of time in, in the world of various forms of the arts, a lot of people do really identify themselves with their talents. Sure. And I've oh, certainly yeah. done that. And it's, I think it's common in many fields. Yeah. Uh, skills, talents, training. Yeah. Yeah. whatever, I, the, all of those identifications. Yeah. Um, and it can, it's very sometimes difficult to even consider the idea of letting that identification go. Absolutely. It becomes so much of how you spend your days and how you spend <coughs> your... Yeah, and, and you're using those processes. identifications to survive and to have meaning, whatever. You know, there's lots of things. Right. When in a world that's materialistic, your utility yeah. in the materialistic world is... Right. Is one of the ways that you say, yeah, I'm important. Right. Right. Yeah. I matter. This is, this is how I can be best utilized. That's right. Would you like to read my bio? <laughs> <laughs> Here's my CV. Well, you know, when, I, when I was in high school, I wanted to have the longest bio in the yearbook. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because somehow that would, you know, that means I was a better person. I, I grew up in a culture that was, in a subtle way, very achievement-oriented. Yep. And uh, you know, it wasn't until I got to California and uh, dropped out, so to speak, and, and found out it was this other culture where people weren't studying your pedigree. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I, I struggled with it. But what I called by the time I was 50, I called it my achievement disorder. <laughs> And That's I, a good not, way to disidentify from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a disorder. It it wasn't bad, but it was out of it was out of the proportion. Right. Mm. Mm. In terms of the importance granted to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I was weighing I, too much of me was identified with that giving me value, and so then I had. I mean, it's gone now pretty much because a lot of other things have happened, but. I, I had to struggle constantly with the fear of failure that somehow I wasn't going to be good enough. And uh, I mean, there were other forces in me that were saying, helping me let go and so forth. So on the move to California was wonderful for me because I got out from under the new England super ego 
and got to a you know to a culture that was much more open and you know at that time forgiving and wonderful it was it was, it was a wonderful spot and part of me knew I needed to get to California in other words I needed to get out of that culture I'd grown up in even though I was very successful at it it had nothing to do with that right. I had to leave it and that was upsetting to my father and you know as I say so but we reconciled in the end and, you know, it, it all worked out. But anyway, that's a little bit. I was going to ask that. So, so you grew up in a family and in a culture in the New England that was quite, um, you know, here's your lane. Yeah. And this is how we know you're doing great. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of came to California and there was sounded like there was quite a bit of pressure and expectation for you to kind of stay in your lane. And then you came to California and things really expanded. Did your, you said you reconciled with your dad. Did he understand ultimately what journey you chose? Yeah. At the end. I mean, you know, we, he didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was upsetting to him because he, he loved me deeply and I loved him too. So it wasn't like he was angry at me or he was just confused. Like, how could you, who were doing so well in the lane, how could you leave? And, uh, but I came back to New England, partly to be with him, and also partly because I wanted to bring these ideas to Boston and see if I could have them grow in that rough, rocky New England, you know, soil. And we did. We very much reconciled. And I found ways of being with him that allowed us to love each other without him being threatened by what he didn't understand. He didn't understand what I was doing. Mm-hmm. He finally did at the end, he did. So no, it worked out fine. Mm-hmm. It, 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 was, it was a long process with him because it's so interesting because we love each other deeply. Yeah. And we both knew that, but these things separated us. And of course that was true in the sixties. Many sons were separated from their fathers around the Vietnam war, civil rights movement and so forth and so on. I wasn't alone in that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's good to hear that. I mean, not good um, and heartwarming to hear that, not just for you and your father that you were able to find that, but I think for for many of us who have maybe been uh, in a way estranged from the ways of being that, uh, and expectations that those we love have either advertently or inadvertently placed on us. And I also wonder if, if as we get closer to to death which is i think just as much a powerful experience as birth and and a powerful gateway um bookends on the lifetime right that that there's understandings that maybe become clearer when we're closer to that place that maybe weren't through sort of the you know middle age or whatnot oh sure definitely i think everything softens and uh, people let go and the whole process of letting go and right. the presence of death definitely or illness and I mean again the pandemic even though it's yeah. brought so much death has brought so much love too and uh, it's, it's just such a complex a complex thing yeah. uh, people have lost people they love and they're more loving as a result so absolutely yeah definitely I think death helps the presence of death helps in awakening and also in softening in the personality so people understand and reconcile with each other. Yeah. It happened for me anyway, definitely. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, yeah. I've experienced a few passings in the last few years and I've noticed that in both of them. 
Absolutely. that softening and that ex- new level of acceptance and mm-hmm. what was once so important just falls away. Right. The, the right. perspective shifts and I think really broadens and that, I find that really inspiring. That's a good way of saying it, the perspective shifts. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't necessarily change the experience, but the perspective changes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this has been such a great time together. Yeah. Um, what do you say? <laughs> amazing. Um, well, I know we talked about this and I'm wondering if you would like to share, share some of your writing from your book as a way for us to wrap up our time sure. together today. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably uh, that poem on the back of the book would be good to read. Sure. Uh, there are others I could read, obviously, too. But, you know, this poem, <clears throat> I guess I could preface it by saying, and I've said this already, and we've talked, it, it's the way I've developed in working in psychosynthesis, and not all psychosynthesis do this, but it just seemed to be partly from the Gestalt training mm-hmm. and partly from Buddhist training that the now, present moment, is where everything is happening. And so the key is to learn how to be in the present moment. And Thich Nhat Hanh teaches that, and you know, there's, there's, there are many different disciplines talk about the eternal now and so forth. So the poem is called Now. And I, I guess I would read it because it exemplifies that important point, but it also, um, embraces the full flow of a life cycle. And the third thing, which we haven't talked about, but uh, the next to last word of the poem is beauty. And this would maybe would be something else to talk about another time, but certainly around this work, there's a soul. One of the qualities that emerges in people is beauty. And it's not cosmetic beauty, it's not artificial beauty, it's, it's, it's the beauty of a deep radiance of being seen, being loved, uh, be, being who you are, and so forth and so on. So you know through the book, the first line is, this book is about human beauty. And beauty is all the way through, and it's partly because I'm an artist, but it's also partly because that's what happens. People become beautiful. And nothing has to do with their physiognomy or their bodies or anything. It's just, they become beautiful. And you can see that with a client you're sitting, suddenly there's this beautiful being sitting across from you, you know, and they're looking at you and they're seeing that you're beautiful too. So now as our dear earth turns, far stars wheel and the great fire burns, we in long light, ascend the hill of our birth, descend to death. Gather in heart and soul kernels of life as grist for love. Wait in growing dark for loved ones before and behind. Surrender at last to time and space, returning our bodies ablaze with the almost unbearable beauty of now. Oh, fantastic, Tom. Thank you so much. No, you're so welcome. Um, for people who are interested, the book is called Holy Fire, The Process of Soul Awakening. 
Thomas Sherman's PhD, which is available on Amazon. Amazon. Is that yep. the best way to find it? Great. Yep, that's the only place to find it. Oh, there you go. Except for the local makes life a lot easier. they have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if people are interested in finding out a bit more about your work, Tommy, you were saying before you're not really taking clients anymore at this point, but the, uh, if people are interested in learning more about your writing and, and the work that you've done, uh, can you give us your website details? Well, it's very, yes, very simple. www.concordinstitute.org. Uh, Great. Yeah. And, and there's certainly information there, and there will be more uh, when I get organized to, um, you know, to put it there. But that, that is, that, mm. that's a basic place to go, certainly. My email address is there, so they could write me okay. if they want. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, yes, and Holy Fire contains uh, everything and much more than we've just talked about, including a lot of great information about the awakening of the soul and a lot of exercises as well uh, that I think are particularly helpful and expansive in discovering the experience of what you're talking about. There's a lot of experience in your life and your background that um, is very important for us all to uh, take a step towards, I think, with this book and these exercises. It's really worth uh, taking a, a slow read, as you said before. Um, best, read, best read slowly. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to being with you again soon. Good. I would enjoy that. Definitely. Wonderful. Thank you, Tom. This podcast is brought to you by Synthesis Center San Francisco. In collaboration with the Synthesis Center Amherst, Massachusetts, we offer professional development and personal growth through psychosynthesis. For more information about our board-certified coach training program, workshops for personal and professional growth, as well as how to work with one of our psychosynthesis-trained coaches, Visit us at synthesiscentersf.com. Awaken your purpose, create your life.